uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 tonight. First Timothy chapter six. <clears throat> and let's go ahead and stand, please. We're going to read verses six through ten tonight. First Timothy six, beginning in verse number six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And we will stop there. And let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to take this passage so very carefully and so very seriously. And I pray for us that we would have grace to think about it as you would think about it. Not to think about it as Americans might think about it. But to think as you think. And I pray then that our ambitions and interests would be shaped by you, not the world around us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. And it is my hope this evening that the text in front of us serves as a warning to us, but not a rebuke to any of us, but Only the Lord knows whether or not this will be the end result. We know, of course, the beginning in what to us is chapter 5. Paul began to direct his attention to sound doctrine within the various components of the assembly. He is concerned with sound doctrine in the church. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, folks, I mean, God is truth. God's word is truth, and God has handed off the truth, or entrusted the truth would be a better way, to the church. And if the church then, which many have, abandons truth, where will truth be found in the world? And of course, we know that the secular world argues that it has some forms of truth, but where will the truth upon which you will build a life come if it is not found in the church, which is the pillar and ground of the church of the truth. And so Paul then begins in chapter 5 to talk about doctrinal truth as pertains to certain people. Uh, the congregation in general, chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, widows, verses 3 through 16, 
Pastors, verses 17 through 25. Servants and Masters, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And our passage this evening, which really is described in verses 9 and 10. A group that hopefully will never be found in any Bible-believing church. Those who will be rich. Those who are stretching themselves out to be rich. And before we can get into the passage and work our way through the text, it would be beneficial for us to take some time and notice some of the definitions of the words that we will be using and to note the way that the passage is arranged. It is God's will for you to be a worker. God has no place for and no toleration for those who are lazy and those who are idle. You never find them commended, not in the book of Proverbs, not in any of the gospel stories, not any place in Scripture. They are viewed in the pastoral epistles as people who are troublemakers in an assembly, those who are idle and those who are busybodies, those who have nothing to occupy their time than other people's business. It is God's will for you to work. God has a work for men. God has a work for women. And it is His will that that work be done. God is a worker. Jesus is a worker. And certainly the day comes for all of us If the Lord doesn't take us home before, when our capacity for work is diminished, our ability to contribute in work is diminished. But in general, it is God's will for us to work. And God wants you to work. And one of the byproducts of work is, for most people, profit from their labor. Now, we talked about this last week. This is not always true. Because one of the things that characterized a slave-holding economy is that slaves did not profit from their labor. And I think that slavery is still in mind in the passage, which is why we are instructed to be content with food and raiment. Who should be content with food and raiment? Well, if the place that God has for you in this world is to be some other man's slave, and what you end up with there is clothing to wear and food to eat. You have enough in this world. You have enough to do what God wants you to do in order to live a life that is acceptable to Him. But in our world, in our world, one of the consequences of labor tends to be profit. And If you would go back into American history, we spoke yesterday at the memorial service for Jane Sealing. If you knew Jane, she was, and I said this, and I really mean this, she was in many ways a poster child for the Puritan work ethic. You worked hard because that's what you were supposed to do and what the Lord wanted. And what our Puritan forefathers discovered was that hard work tended to generate large profits. And then what many of them learned the hard way was that large profits turned them into poor Christians. And that was a real problem 
to that world. So in any event, right, whatever is going on in the passage, we want to understand that we were created to work. That we are, in fact, God's work. We are His workmanship. We are His handiwork. We are the work that He is doing, and part of the work that He is doing is for us to be doing the work that He has for us to do. Secondly, again, just by way of orienting ourselves around the passage, God is not fundamentally opposed to people being wealthy. It is not His will that everybody will be wealthy. When Jesus said we would always have the poor, He wasn't saying that from the ignorance of the blessings of socialism. He was saying that as a statement of fact that there will be always poor people in the world. And in fact, the Bible points out that God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith. And so, although in our world there are few calamities greater than to be poor, in God's economy, poverty and spiritual wealth often go hand in hand. And when we get to the passage, and a little bit later, because the passage is arranged along a couple of lines. In verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6, Paul is tackling the subject of people who have an ambition to be wealthy. And in verses 17 through 19, Paul is tackling the subject of those who are wealthy. And they're not condemned for being wealthy. And in between is this passionate appeal to avoid the perils that Paul is outlining for us in verses 9 and 10. So if you find yourself, as a consequence of your hard work, to be financially well off in this world, that is not necessarily a problem. That is not a sin and you've not committed a sin. God has something to say to you, but none of what he says to you is dispose of all your wealth. Get rid of it all. It is a terrible thing to have. Then there are a couple of words in the passage that we need to go back and make sure that we understand. One is found in verse number 6 and verse number 8, contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. The idea of contentment is actually of independence or of self-sufficiency. Interestingly enough, it is that very reason that causes many people to work so hard to gain material wealth, so that they might be independently wealthy or independent of the workforce. But here the independence is freedom from the cumber, the cumbersome weight of spending your life trying to get something that ultimately is of very little consequence. Now, to us, it's of great consequence. But what we're supposed to be doing is learning to develop God's way of thinking about this world's good. And this world doesn't have a clue about the way God thinks about financial gain. 
And if all that we are exposed to is what the world tells us about being rich, we're going to find ourselves exactly where God says we will find ourselves. So here the independence is the ability to be free from the love of money in such a way that if you have enough to eat and you have enough to wear, you are at peace in this world. And you are at peace with what the Lord has for you. Because, folks, you may rest assured of this, that there are no crowns passed out in heaven that are based upon our financial statements and our tax returns. That they are of no consequence whatsoever. And certainly we understand that God is never going to give to any man enough money that he will be independent of God himself. That he will be able to function without the Lord. And in fact, we've already looked at that in Hebrews 13. Let your conversation, let your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. So contentment here is the freedom from the burden of giving your life over to the acquisition of wealth. And that brings me to the next word that we need to define. And this is the most problematic word for us, I think, folks, just by virtue of the fact that we live in a relatively affluent culture and we have very different ideas about the meaning of this word. And that is the word rich. Verse number nine, they that will be rich. The word simply means to have abundance. In other words, folks, right? I'm not trying to be unkind to any of us here, and I think we all know that pastors are not immune to any other temptation that anybody else faces. But please do not ever sit in a pew in any church and hear that verse and think, I'm not trying to be as rich as Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates, so this doesn't pertain to me. Because that is not God's definition of rich. God's definition of rich is a much lower bar. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever wondered? Right here comes a rich young ruler running up to Jesus. And he says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have their conversation about the first four parts of the law and the young man erroneously believes that he has kept all of his obligations for the last six. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing for you to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And we know that the man went away very sorrowful for he was rich and had great possessions. Have you ever wondered what he had? What could he possibly possess, folks? Doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a car. Do you have a car? He didn't have a car. He didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have a computer or a tablet. He didn't have a television. What did he have? 
What did he have that made him so rich that Jesus would say that to him? And what did he have that he treasured so much he would not part with it, but rather went away sad? And if that man, I mean, look, folks, if we could resurrect that man, and we do not know what ultimately happened to him. Did he ever come to faith in Christ or did he die rich materially and poor spiritually? But if we could bring that man from his world and plop him right down into any house of any of us that live here, that man would be envious of what we have. My point, folks, is simply this. I'm not trying to beat you up. But none of us get a pass by thinking, I have no ambition to be a a billionaire. I don't even have an ambition to be a millionaire. Jesus is including those people, but he is not limiting himself to those people. He's not defining the text, folks, by a quantity of money. That's not what defines the text. When I can get X number of dollars accumulated, that's my goal. He has something much simpler in mind. People whose solitary, not solitary, but whose driving ambition is to just get ahead a little bit. To have enough to live and enough to set aside. Just to be full. And there is great spiritual peril to people who place even that at the front of their priority list. That's what the text is about. We're not trying to define wealth as America defines wealth. We're defining wealth as God defines wealth. And the passage is about those who are in the pursuit of it. The idea is, they that will be rich, those that have made this their agenda, those that are literally stretching themselves out to this, there is trouble for them. Verses 6 and 8, and we ended with them last week, but let's just take a moment and refresh our memories. They provide us with the proper biblical perspective on wealth in this world. There is a teaching, verse number 6, or actually found in verse number 5, supposing that gain is godliness, to have as an opinion, to hold it as their viewpoint, that either godliness is the pathway to gain, or what is more inclined from the direct teaching of the text is that To have money is an indication of your godliness. That wealthy Christians are godly Christians. That one of the ways that you know somebody is spiritual is by where they line up financially in this world. And of course we know that there's no shortage of television evangelists who are teaching that passionately almost always by milking the poor for their own personal gain. Couching their covetousness in biblical language, plant your seed of faith. 
But there is a mentality out there that is endeavoring at some level to equate a man's spiritual condition in this world with his financial position in this world. As if they are interchangeable. As if heaven has some kind of a record book in which we are ranked according to our bank balances. And of course we were taught in verse number 5 to get away from such people and all who would teach that. It is completely false and detrimental. But here is the biblical perspective. And here is, folks, the biblical priority. First, godliness. First, godliness. Reverence, piety, the right attitude towards God. And then contentment, a sense of sufficiency. We've talked about this. The independence of being content, of being comfortable, of being at peace with what one has in the world, with one's place in the world. Because one's place in this world, folks, is not one's place in the world that is to come. And if a man can first be godly and secondly be content, he has accomplished the great goal. This is a man who has really got something worth having. This is great gain. If you can maintain in your life, folks, the right attitude and the right orientation and the right respect for God, and to be content with your station in this life, if it meets your needs and covers your expenses, and you can genuinely lay your head on your pillow at night and not be bitter towards the Lord or frustrated with your status in this world, and if you cannot feel envy and jealousy over the better off finances of others, you have got something that is really worth having. It is not simply gain, it is the great gain. And this is what God would say to us. And the reason that God says that is this, verse number 9. I'm sorry, verse number 7. You didn't come in with any of it, and you're not leaving with any of it. So to make the short time that we have to live all about that, folks, is to live really fundamentally contrary to the Lord. He can't get all excited about how rich any of us are. We're not taking it with us. And no matter how well off your parents might have been, you came into the world with nothing. And you will leave with nothing. But then pivoting to verse number 9. If gain comes before godliness... there is going to be trouble. If gain comes before godliness, folks, there's going to be trouble. It is possible to be godly and have great gain. It is possible, by the way, to be godly, to be financially prosperous, and to still have great gain. But as soon as the gain comes first, Trouble is there. 
And there is not one nice, positive, upbeat thing said in verse 9 or 10. It is just a litany of disaster. Disaster followed by disaster. Trouble followed by trouble. Ominous statement followed by ominous statement. As soon as gain gets ahead of godliness on the priority list of the way we live, there is going to be trouble. I would point out, folks, that this is completely and totally consistent with what Jesus taught us. Seek first, first, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Seek first. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not saying I've been successful. I'm just saying this, folks, in almost 40 years of being a pastor, I've watched dozens of people make life-altering decisions. And at the bottom of the list is their spiritual well-being. I actually had a man say to me, and this was not a fly-by-night believer, I actually had a man say to me after he had explained to me the processes that he had gone through in selecting where he would settle and the services that were available to him and the desirability of the place and the geography and all of the demographics, he looked at me and said, the only thing left to do is to find a church. Dear folks, of course, I would never support you leaving with joy. But the very first thing that you should do is find a church. There's nothing in the world more important than your spiritual well-being. That's the first decision to make. Not the last decision. That's not even a middle decision to make. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Never put gain ahead of godliness for any reason, for anybody. And verses 9 and 10 explain why any pastor would say that to his congregation. It's a hard line, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a thick line in the sand. As I've already mentioned, the entire tenor of verses 9 and 10 is cautionary in nature. There's nothing positive. There's no hope held out. There are no, well, this might be an exception. This might not happen. It could happen, but it doesn't happen to everybody. Those who put godliness first, those who will be rich, Those who stretch themselves out to get ahead. They fall. They all fall. There are no exceptions to the fall. There's no escaping the fall. This is going to come to every believer. To every professing believer. Who says... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to get ahead in this world. 
In 1 Timothy 3.6, Paul uses the same word to describe novices who in their pride fall into the condemnation of the devil. And in 1 Timothy 3.7, pastors who do not have a good report among unbelievers will fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Here is what those who put gain ahead of godliness fall into. Verse number 9. They that will be rich fall into temptation. Your faith will be put to a test that it need not experience. You will fall into this. If, If gain comes ahead of godliness, your faith will be tested in a way that it need not. There are many things that will test our faith. This one will test your faith. Can your faith withstand the lure of money? Simply because we record these and broadcast these, I'm just going to keep the name out of this, but I'll be happy to tell you who the man that was that told me, but he's a reliable source. This was a number of years ago, and some of you folks would probably remember he's with the Lord now, a man by the name of Larry Burkett. Larry Burkett was a believer who had a radio show in which he dealt with financial matters, advising Christians on financial matters. And this man was telling us, he, he, was, he told a group of us about listening to the show one day, in his car, listening to the radio show, and Larry Burkett had on the show a man who had really kind of inadvertently, but his, his entire life work was advising Christians who found themselves unexpectedly wealthy. They had inherited a lot of money, or through some other measure, they had, just, they had come into a lot of money and they were wealthy. And he said, we were just, they, this was the whole nature of the show. The man talked about this, right? These, these weren't even people who had, who had just gotten out of bed as hard chargers to be rich. They just had a pile of money fall into their lap. And he said, toward the end of the show, Larry Burkett said, now, of all these people that you've advised, how many of them would you say had been adversely affected by this windfall of money? And the man said, oh, that's very easy. I've only known one that wasn't. Why is that? Because, folks, it brings a temptation. It brings its own temptation. They that will be rich fall into this temptation. The temptation of their faith. <clears throat> Once you set out, folks, on the course to pursue money and getting ahead, you will discover an endless, reason, uh, an endless list of opportunities to get more money and to get farther ahead. They'll just be there. You don't need to worry about it. The tempter will ensure that there is always one more test for you to have. How much money is enough? How much is enough? Have we ever heard of anybody who really announces that it's enough? Or are not most of us always convinced that I don't know what enough is, but a little bit more is almost there? They that will be rich fall into 
temptation. But not just temptation, back to verse number 9, and a snare. They don't just fall into the temptation of pursuing more. They are oftentimes trapped to where getting more becomes a goal and an end in and of itself. Believing the illusion that there is more to have and that if one would have more, one would be happier or safer or more satisfied, more life, more whatever it is that they have convinced themselves it is. Read the book of Proverbs, folk, written by a man who himself is fabulously wealthy. And let him talk to you about some of the perils of being wealthy. They that will be rich fall into this temptation and this trap. And they fall into, again back to verse number 9, many foolish and hurtful lusts. There are temptations, there's a trap, there's a tug for the sake of alliteration. And they fall into not a few of them, but many of them. But they all share the same dimension. They are senseless. Many foolish and hurtful lusts. Completely unnecessary. Completely brainless is the idea. In other words, folks, look, God is trying to tell us at the very outset... Right? It's like, it's, like, it's like there's a room with a, a, with a door and the door says, more money. And God says, believe in me, put me first. I'll take care of your needs. But if you go through that door, let me tell you what's behind that door. And what's behind that door is the temptation of your faith. And what's behind that door is the allure of getting ever more, because you'll never be satisfied. And once you go down that road and you start to believe that, it's almost like you believe anything. Many foolish and hurtful lusts. Lusts that are absolutely unnecessary and absolutely senseless. But they are all harmful. They are all injurious. And they drown men. And the only other place that word is used in the entire New Testament is in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 7 where it describes a boat that is sinking. All the weight of getting more, all the burden of getting and acquiring and maintaining and sustaining more consume people. And they drown them in destruction and that's the, the idea there is not two separate things, but it is a drowning to the point of being destroyed. And this is because, folks, in other words, you say, is verse number 9 true? Absolutely true. Why is verse number 9 true? Because verse number 10 is true. You can't set your sights on getting ahead and avoid the perils of verse number 9. Because the minute you set your sights, the minute the big thing is to get ahead, you become a silver lover. And the love of money 
is the root of all evil. And we just, I just didn't want to talk about that, right? We, we periodically talk about that word. Sometimes the word all means all in its entirety, and sometimes the word all, same Greek word, means all kinds. And here it obviously means all kinds. Not every single sin can be tied to money, but many can. And folks, it isn't just politicians who are susceptible to the lure of money. The love of money is the root of all evil, of all kinds of evil. Which while some have coveted after, not all believers, not all professing believers fall into this trap. But all who do, all who say, right, here's what I'm going to do with my life. I want to I serve the Lord. I want to go to church. But what I really want to do is get ahead. What I really want to do then, then there is a perilous path for you. Because once we commit to money first, it comes with all of these evil temptations that Satan would never say to us are evil temptations. He would always entice us with the good side. That's the nature of a temptation, folks. The temptation never says, here's a disaster. The temptation says, here's a good thing. But what is the price that is paid? Which while some, verse middle of verse number 10, coveted after, they have erred from the faith. And this, of course, folks, is what God is primarily concerned for you. We may want to be rich, but God doesn't, God doesn't care if we're rich. He's rich. We may want the status that comes with riches, but God has status. God wants us to believe Him and trust Him. And when we make getting ahead the goal, He is the price that is often paid. They err from the faith. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Many, many ugly flowers bloom off of that root. Why do we want it? The acquisition side of wealth and what are we going to do with it? The spend side of wealth. We even have words to describe it these days. Conspicuous consumption. If you look at verse number 10 again, folks, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And I just want to be abundantly painfully clear here, folks, that God is treating this in verses 9 and 10 as if it is a decision that we make that he would advise against and that we are afflicting ourselves with all of those perils that are unnecessary. So that the pursuit and the acquisition of more is spiritual suicide. Look at the end of verse number 10. You are stabbing yourself to death. 
you are stabbing your soul to death. Again, I hope that I speak this as a caution to us, that we go, I don't want to do that, and, and I'm not going to do that, and these things are good to know, rather than for God to have to say to any one of us, you, are you listening to me? I'm trying to get your attention. You are perilously close to going down that road. So they stray away from the faith, folks. And we know, we know what that looks like. Right? We know what it is. We, that's not the only reason that people stray away from the faith. But it is a major reason that they stray away from the faith. The Bible gets closed and it never gets opened. The prayer closet gets locked and it never gets entered. Church attendance declines. Fellowship with the Lord's people. Certainly those in the pursuit of acquiring money are going to be very reluctant to give any of that money to the Lord or to the Lord's people for their needs. And they are eventually forgotten by the churches that they attended and the Christians that they knew, but they're not forgotten by God. They are committing a form of spiritual suicide. They stab themselves with many sorrows. So here is the order, folks. Right? Godliness first. And it may be, I mean, it just may be that in your diligent pursuit of godliness, God will see fit to give you gain. And if that's you, then He has something to say to you in verses 17, 18, and 19. But the proper order is godliness first. Contentment with what the Lord has for you. If it's enough, let it be enough. And the result of that is great gain. Verse number six. Something really worth having. But if we live in disorder and gain comes first instead of contentment and security, which is the goal, instead of pleasure, there is sorrow. And material riches pursued improperly result in spiritual ruin. So again, folks, this is not about a quantity of money. I'm not trying to be a millionaire, so I'm safe. This is about an orientation of life. It's really putting our finger right upon our faith. Do we believe what the Lord says about this or do we not? Do we believe that the Lord is looking out for our best interests when he tells us, put me first. Do what I tell you to do with your money. Think about it the way I want to think about it. I will take care of everything. It really is a faith issue. Let's pray. Father, I I pray for us. 
with the affluence of our country and the materialism of our age and the spirit of acquisition and consumerism. I pray for us, especially those who are young in this world and young in their life, that their orientation always would be you first, that their energies would be put into the pursuit of godliness and righteousness and the kingdom. that you would deliver them from the suicidal tendencies of pursuing wealth. Father, help us to believe that you are genuinely concerned about us. That we are confident you don't hold any good things back from us, but do what is always best for us. And I Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.